Thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad that you're here this morning to take part in our worship and the study of the Word. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, we're thankful to have the uh, Grischuk family here with us, and uh, I want to encourage you, if you can at all, to be here this evening at 6 to uh, hear what Dima has to tell us in his presentation. I know you'll find it interesting and encouraging, uplifting, uh, and it will give you a lot to pray about. And so I hope that you will be here. We'll be having a meal following, and uh, everyone is invited to come and, and stay for that. So I hope that you will uh, be able to do that. We are continuing this morning our study of Romans 1. And uh, as we begin to get ready to begin that, I, I want to encourage you, if you are not yet in Christ, have not yet confessed Him and been baptized into Him, that today is a great day to do that. It'll be a wonderful opportunity for you. And you can come at the end of the service and tell us that at your desire. You can tell us that anytime, but we do encourage you to uh, turn your life over to the Lord uh, today uh, as soon as possible. One of the greatest things of all the great things said about God in the Bible, but one of the greatest is that he always keeps his word, always keeps his word. Who do you know that always keeps their word. A lot of times, even when we want to keep our word, we're not able to. But God can and God does. He never breaks a single promise. In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, he describes himself this way. He says, I am the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. That means he never, ever goes back on his word. That means that once he has promised something, it will be done, it will stand. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God made a promise to Abraham that through him and his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Ten chapters later, in Genesis 22 and verse 18, he said, In your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And eventually, through Abraham's line of descent, was born Jesus the Christ. He was that offspring who became a blessing to all by dying for the sins of the world. You see, the idea was that Abraham and his descendants were not supposed to be a reservoir for holding the blessings of God. That wasn't the plan. They weren't supposed to receive the blessings of God and keep them. They were supposed to be a channel through whom the blessings of God would flow to all nations. That was the plan from the beginning, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. They were the object of God's love, but they were not the only object of God's love. We know from the New Testament that God loves the world. But it was through this one man and his family that God had decided that he would bring that, those blessings into the world, and then they should channel those blessings to the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. So when Paul, in Romans 1, talks about the gospel, he talks about it in terms of promises kept. Because the gospel is a promise kept. In Romans 1, verses 1 and 2, he says the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we know that for hundreds of years before Jesus came, there were prophets in the Old Testament who were telling of this Messiah who would come, this Savior who would come and redeem humanity, redeem all of, of God's people. In Luke 24, uh, verse 27, 
Jesus was walking with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't know who he was. He began to reveal something to them when he, when he began to tell them about himself. And the Bible says this, describing what had to be the greatest Bible class of all time. Greatest Bible study of all time. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you wish they'd taken notes? Don't you wish that we could go online and pull up everything that Jesus said about himself in all of the scriptures and all of the prophets? It would set a lot of arguments, wouldn't it? And it would enlighten us a great deal to hear Jesus himself tell about that. But in all of these cases, promise was made and the promise was kept. But then in Romans 1, in verse 16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, when Paul uses the word the Greek, or the term the Greek, he's not talking about just people of Greek nationality. He's talking about Gentiles generally, because they lived in the Hellenistic world, the Greek world. And so that was the normal Jewish way of referring to the Gentile, the Greek. So Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to, and some translations put it this way, to the Gentiles. He's the power of God for salvation to all. Part of the glory of the gospel is that it is available to everybody. And it is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed. But the question comes up, why to the Jew first? Why does Paul say that? Why did he say to the Jew first and then to the Greek? Why didn't he just say the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and leave it at that? Why didn't he just stop there without saying to the Jew first and also to the Greek? And the answer is that he emphasizes that God kept his promise to Abraham. He kept his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be the chosen people. And that through them would come the Savior of the world. Through the Messiah of Israel would come the Savior of the world. So when the gospel finally came, it came first to them and then to everybody else, so that there would be no doubt whatever that God had kept his word that he had made to Abraham. Now that truth is emphasized throughout Romans, that it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans was to try to, in, to shore up the unity and peace between Jewish and Gentile factions in the Roman church. You probably already know that for centuries there had been tensions and hostilities between Jews and Gentiles. Even when the church began and Jews and Gentiles found themselves together in the one body of Christ, sometimes it was difficult for them. It became a special problem for the church in Rome. In the year AD 49, the emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to get out of Rome. And they all did. They all had to leave the city of Rome. And so the result was what had been a mixed church of both Jews and Gentiles, possibly even the majority of them Jewish, but had been a mixed church, was now entirely Gentile. 
Five years after he issued that edict, Claudius died in AD 54. And it was the custom of the Romans that when the emperor died, any edict that he had made died with him. I know what you're thinking. You're wishing we had that, but we don't. <laughs> and any edict that he had would, would die with him. And so when Claudius died, that edict died, and Jews were allowed to go back to Rome. But when they did, what they found was the church had been entirely Gentile for five years. And it wasn't easy to incorporate the Jewish Christians back into it. And perhaps the Gentile Christians felt a, a sense of superiority over their Jewish brothers. And so there was tension. And so Paul writes this letter to remind Gentiles that the Jews were, in fact, God's chosen people and that the roots of their Christian faith lay in Judaism. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you'll see that clearly. That's where Paul really gets into that whole subject. But he touches on it throughout the letter. Also, uh, he writes that after... Uh, that all both Jews and Gentiles were sinners saved by God's grace, so nobody should feel superior to anybody else. If, if the Jew was saved by grace and the Gentile was saved by grace, then nobody should feel that they, that they were better off than the other. Without the gospel, they would all simply be sinners under God's judgment. So in verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And listen to what Paul says about this. He took it very personally, because remember, Paul himself was a Jew. And in Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is blessed, uh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul says, what a shame that so many of his own kinsmen were turning away from, from Christ because all of this started with them. The covenant was originally made with them. The storyline of which Jesus is the fulfillment was their story. And now he wished that they would open their hearts to the message of Christ. In Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, he says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Because the Jews were first in line for God's blessings, they were first in line for God's judgment, he says. They needed Christ, just like everybody else. Now, that fact, the fact that the gospel was to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, 
explain something that's sometimes a mystery to us in the teachings of Jesus. You heard the scripture readings just a moment ago from Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. In Matthew 10, Jesus sent out the 12, telling them to go nowhere among the Gentiles. And don't enter any town of the Samaritans, but go only, he said, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, and as they went, they were to proclaim to them the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and they were to heal and cast out demons and all those other things. And we read that and we think, why did he just send them to the Jews? Why did he tell them definitely to stay away from the Gentiles and from the Samaritans? After all, they needed the good news too. They would have benefited from healing. They would have benefited from having the demons cast out. Why? Why did he tell them to avoid going to the Gentiles and to Samaritans? Why not to everyone at the same time? And the answer is because he came first as Israel's Messiah. And once that promise of a Messiah had been fulfilled, then he could send them out to proclaim him as Savior of the world. And that's what happens in Matthew 28, verse 19, after he had been crucified and raised from the dead. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. At first it was to the Jews only. Then he says, now go to all the nations. Go to all the nations and preach that good news. That practical fulfillment of the Jew first and then the Greek is obvious in, in the book of Acts. In Acts 3, 25 and 26, uh, Peter says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The gospel was preached first to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, but then before long in the book of Acts, you have the apostle Paul being sent out as the apostle to the Gentiles to take that message to everyone. And when Paul would go to a new Hellenistic city to proclaim the gospel there, where did he go? He went first of all to the synagogue and preached the gospel first to them. And then if he was driven out or if people refused to hear him, then he would turn to the Gentiles. But you know, there were Gentiles even in the synagogues worshiping there. And Paul wanted to contact them as well as give his Jewish brothers the opportunity to hear and to believe. Acts chapter 14 and verse 1 says that at Iconium they entered into the, the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then he said... He did this as was his custom. It was his custom to go into the synagogues. He did it in Thessalonica, he did it in Corinth, he did it in Ephesus, and he did it in Antioch. But even though most of them didn't believe, they still had the right of first refusal. And the way the book of Acts ends in chapter 28, uh, in verses 23 to 29, Paul meets with the Jewish leaders in the city of Rome, and he tells them the story of Jesus tells them the kingdom of God, and they refuse to listen. And Paul says, now that you've refused to believe, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. 
But in every case, the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Well, I want you to understand there's more here than just a history lesson. This isn't just about timing. This isn't just about Claudius, and it isn't just about what happened in Rome. It's about us, too. First of all, we should never forget the Jewish roots of our faith. We should never forget that. I've heard Christians speak sometimes as though Judaism or something's just sort of a, an accident before Christianity came along. And that isn't the case. God worked through the people of Israel first of all and through them to be that channel of blessing to bring the Messiah to the rest of us and to give us the opportunity to know the Christ. Romans 11 describes salvation as an olive tree. He's speaking specifically to the Gentiles, he says. And he says, I want you to understand this. He says, you are grafted in branches onto an olive tree that has Jewish roots. The roots in the trunk of the tree, he says, are Jewish. And yes, some of them got cut off because of unbelief. And you got grafted in. But originally, it was the Jewish tree. We partake of the promises of God made to Abraham. And we also are his sons by faith. And we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful for everything that has gone before us to make our salvation possible. We ought to seek to understand everything that Scripture tells us about that faith. Because out of it grew our own. So that's one important lesson. The second is, nobody is left out of God's plan. To the Jew first, yes, but also to the Gentile. All the rest of us are included. I've mentioned this before, but so many times people who don't believe in Christ look at Christianity as an exclusivist religion. They think we're those people who just kind of huddle in our, our places of worship and we try to shut everybody out. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Or if it is the truth, we need to repent of it. Because the reality of it is that Christianity is the most inclusive faith that there is. Christianity is about drawing all people to Christ. Christianity is about proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. Christianity is about a message that goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the only thing that excludes anyone from the blessings of God's salvation is a decision on their part not to believe and not to obey. That's the only thing. And so people are self-excluding. It's not that our faith excludes them. Our God wants them all. Our Savior died for them all. And it should be our desire as well to see them all come to Christ. And that brings us to the third thing. Just like Israel, the church is to be the channel of God's blessing to the world. We're not a reservoir either. We're not a reservoir either. We're not, we're not just to become the recipients of God's blessing. We're not, we're not a bunch of little collective individual reservoirs or one big collective reservoir. We are to be a channel through whom the blessings of God flow because the gospel flows through us. And we proclaim that gospel to others. Israel was to be a light to the world. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? You are the light of the world. Let your light Therefore, I shine. Let people see 
the glory of God in you. Let them hear the message of Christ. Nobody takes a lamp and hides it under a basket, he says. We today are no likewise, are likewise to bear that light to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. And if we haven't yet fully realized our, our identity, part of our identity is to carry out that task. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are the people who are taking a message of God's love and God's salvation and God's blessing to lost and dying world. God so carefully planned our salvation. He chose Abraham and his descendants. He made promises that could never be broken. Jesus came as that offspring to bless the world. And now you and I are blessed. And now it's our task to bless others. I want to leave you with a question this morning. Who will you bless in return? Somebody blessed you by telling you the story of Jesus. Somebody blessed you. If you're in Christ, somebody has already blessed you, whether it was your family or a friend or a neighbor or a complete stranger. Somebody blessed you because they saw themselves as a channel through whom the message of God's love in Christ flowed. And now the question is, to whom will you be that channel of blessing? To let others know the good news of their Savior as well. If you're ready to turn to Christ today, we invite you to do it. Let's stand together and sing. We have heard.